Welcome to Global's First Podlet. I am your host, JT Africa Director at the International Republican Institute. First things first, though, what is a podlet exactly? As many of you know who follow this podcast quite closely, Global is a monthly episode that focuses on a specific country, and we share some really specific stories, insights, and voices about this country that we'll focus on. So in addition to the episodes for Global, we'll now be adding a short 15 to 20 minute themed based podcast that will be released in between every country episode. These short episodes that we're calling Podlets uh, will cover topics like Chinese influence, resurgent populism, rigged elections, and everything in between. Today we're talking about decentralization though. Decentralization has come up a great deal in previous podcasts, but most recently on the Libya podcast, and that was the most recent episode. If you haven't heard it, go to where you download your podcast and where you found Global and look for the Libya episode. In order to first define decentralization and then break it down a little, I'm going to bring in Egyart Lazindia. He is IRI Senior Manager for Governance. He leads IRI's efforts to promote citizen-centered governance through programming, focused on everything from anti-corruption, e-governance, and of course, decentralization. Egyar, welcome to the podlet. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start off with the basics. Decentralization, it's a big word. It gets thrown around a lot. People just think uh, that's just anything below the national level. But maybe you can give us a little bit more insight into what decentralization is and sort of how that engages and impacts with democracy in general? Put simply, decentralization is the transfer of power from a central authority to local body or administration. And obviously there are different uh, levels of intensity that decentralization can take place, but academics and experts usually differentiate among three types of decentralization. Deconcentration, which is the most basic form, which essentially uh, involves transferring some authority over policymaking or the administration of a government function to central government authority. Often you see this when certain decisions are maybe made closer to their final beneficiaries at the local level, but still within the framework and within the national government. Devolution is the most intense way or form that decentralization can take form. This is a true transfer of power from the center to some national governments, and this involves everything from decision-making, power over policies, to the implementation, administration, uh, monitoring evaluation of government responsibilities. In between, you have delegation, which often is used to refer to transfers of authority from the central government to a semi-autonomous body, like a state-owned enterprise. So decentralization, as you can see, is a complex term, but I think it's most often referred to devolution, as I was saying, to, the, to its most extensive form. So I was in Kenya in 2012 at a time when Kenya itself was implementing the 2010 constitution, which provided for sort of a big bang approach to devolution. They were having elections in 2013, electing an entirely new level of government. What I found to be most confusing for people who were doing this for the first time is they were often having questions about federalism, right, and the issue of the kind of state it is and how that fits into it. Could you maybe help make some differentiation between whether you need to be federal in model or you don't have to be or how that works out? That's a great observation. I should have started by saying that, yes, decentralization is usually used uh, in unitary context because unlike federalism, which is 
constitutionally divided power, decentralization occurs, otherwise unitary state, that makes the decision to devolve the concentrate or delegate some of the power to lower levels of government. So yeah, there is sometimes confusion that arises because effectively decentralized countries often resemble federal ones. They do, and sometimes they even have similar names because I remember in Kenya they called the county executive leader a governor. So, of course, they think they're like the Nigerian governors, which are part of a federal system. You know, we often had to correct the record and say, no, you're interdependent in many ways as part of a devolved function, a devolved power, but certainly still interdependent and part of this unitary state. So that is a good point to make. And I think that's a clarification that sometimes people get wrong when they first interact and they say, oh, wait, all of a sudden there's elections at the local level and there's their own often budgeting capabilities and administrative power. That sounds like what we have in the United States or what we have in, in other parts of the world that have these federal systems. So it's important to get that out there, but maybe talk a little bit about sort of how devolution takes shape or other decentralized functions, because the pace matters. I remember also part of my time in East Africa was the issue of looking at maybe how decentralization took place in places like Rwanda and Burundi and Tanzania and Uganda and Kenya. And the approaches are very different. And some of them are driven by politics. Some of them are driven by post-conflict scenarios where they've had a chance to reset their country and learn, but do so thoughtfully, but then rush to implement. So maybe talk about that and give us some ideas of different countries that are going through that. As you mentioned, there's usually, and I like to put this in two broader buckets, there's two drivers of decentralization. There's an efficiency argument, which posits that decentralization can contribute to better public service provision by reducing bureaucracy, cutting red tape, by bringing citizens and their representatives closer and therefore providing representatives with better information that will help us implement better policies. But it's also the democratic argument, which is something that you were also touching on, which is based on the idea that by power sharing and allowing otherwise marginalized people to take part and to directly hold a specific office or be responsible for a specific service close to the community, they're going to be more integrated, they're going to be part of a more inclusive system, and that's going to legitimate the whole system of democratic governments in a given country or area. But yeah, the pace is very important, and there's no two decentralization processes that are the same. Each country follows its own path, but I think that you can see three approaches to this decentralization sequence. There's the Bigma model, as you mentioned earlier. Indonesia is a good example of these countries that they transition to democracy and decentralize at the same time. There's also countries or, that... Or they switch systems quickly. Or they switch systems quickly, right? even like in without the case, Maybe like it was a deconcentrated system, but then it was like overnight, you didn't have this long period of transition. Exactly, which can be exhausting and ultimately people would argue hurt the process. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Tunisia, which obviously ousted the Ben Ali regime in, in the years 2010-2011, but only a few months ago had their first local elections, even though part of the democratic transition was rooted in this idea of making sure that citizens in more remote areas of the country had a say in their local affairs and in issues that affected them closely. So those are the two extremes, the bang bang and the slower approach. But you also have countries that are more iterative in the way they see decentralization, and Colombia is a good example of this. With the 1991 constitution, the country, which was already, with all its flaws, a democratic state, decided to experiment with decentralization. And at first, there was just a little bit of deconcentration and delegation of, of powers, but also some gradual devolution. Yeah. And over the process, they realized there was room for making improvements, for changing the formulas, 
uh, for transferring resources, for providing locally elected officials with the expertise that they need to do a good job. So, as I was saying, there is different ways that decentralization can come about. And it also seems that politics and political will has a lot to do with it because you often find debates after the fact, right? You find once you decentralize, there are those ministers back in the capital that are saying, why did we do this? Or those MPs who are aligned with the ministers of that party saying, you know, this has become too expensive or this has become too politically complicated for us. We need to go back to a way that's more efficient, less costly to the citizens so that services can be brought through. The other argument that I often hear and says, oh, all we've done is decentralize things like corruption. We haven't solved the governance problem. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. That's a critical point, because even though decentralization has a lot of promise and can be a very effective tool for improving representation and the access to services of people in somewhat remote areas, it has its risks. And many times when it's not conducted properly with proper safeguards, it might end up decentralizing issues that were already occurring at the national level, like corruption, for example. So it is important when embarking on a decentralization process to make sure that A, there is clarity in terms of the functions and the scope of this decentralization process, that there are accountability mechanisms in place. Elections are the most formal basic one, but there's a wide array of participatory democracy tools that can be used to make sure that locally elected officials or any other civil servants that are responsible for implementing and making decisions at the local level are in check. And also this has to be transparency in the process. So citizens are also aware of what has changed vis-a-vis the centralized status quo. Yeah, because of course, service delivery needs to improve for them to see the real impact and for them to feel like they have a voice. Just going back to Libya, where does Libya fit in to the overall approach? I mean, how are, how are they doing? Libya is a little bit of a different case because it's largely a failed state right now. And therefore, decentralization there is seen by many as an opportunity to underpin the transition to democracy ultimately. IRI's poll in there, for instance, shows that people at the local level are more trusting of municipal authorities than they are of central ones. So given this discrepancy in terms of trust and these surprisingly high numbers of approval for local authorities, many think that embedding decentralization in a reform process is potentially a way to increasing the chances for democratic consolidation to occur. Another point I wanted to raise was the issue of the role that national legislatures play. Because there's obviously, if you're getting into issues related to share of national revenue, transfer of specific state functions from a national level to a subnational, there needs to be some oversight. In some models, you have a second house created, right? Where these subnational units are represented in some way on decision making. Some cases, it's a system where there's just a unicameral body. How do national legislatures play a role in this? And what do you think they're sort of their role or value should be? I think that you've outlined essentially the two models as far as legislative control and oversight of decentralization goes. I think that parliamentarians and nationally elected officials play a key role in not only providing oversight over the process, but also in legitimizing it. Often what you end up seeing is that sometimes elected representatives that come from areas that have ethnic or other minorities, they forget about or they de-emphasize issues of common national concern and they become too solely focused 
on representing exclusively their constituents, which is understandable and can be uh, necessary, especially when you have context of great inequality, but it can also be a source of conflict down the road if provisions are put in place to make sure that diverse countries are still able to agree on issues of national importance. Well, and the issue of diversity does come up. When you have this decentralization happen, some could argue that it could lead to the breakup of a country, right? Those who are against decentralization or against an aggressive form of it might say, oh, if we split up too much and have too much power sent down to the ground, these small enclaves, you know, might not work very well, might actually serve for people to claim independence or say, well, you see, we do it better than the the central government. seems like these power struggles, though, have to be delicately balanced. Absolutely. But I would argue that integration is always preferable to outright conflict or to gridlock. So even though there are opportunistic politicians everywhere, unfortunately, I think that that argument doesn't really hold when you have situations where either for objective inequality reasons, for complex societal makeups, or just sometimes size or geography plays a factor. Indonesia, for instance. I'm thinking Ethiopia, too. Ethiopia, too. It's a great example. When you have largely diverse countries that involve a vast amount of territory, you have no choice other than allowing for people to have more control of their affairs at a lower level of governance, whether that's local or state level. And then how about this issue of the stomach for it? I talked a little about political will, but some of this is about trial and error. I think you talked a little bit about the flexibility is needed to be able to go back and make reforms and things like that. We talked a little bit about the role of a national legislature. Of course, those changes can also be done locally as well. Maybe talk a little bit about some of your experiences with the trial and error process that goes into the implementation. I mentioned Colombia earlier, and I think that's a good example because it touches on a number of issues that we've discussed. Colombia is a resource-rich country, and originally when they first approached decentralization, they had determined that departments that were endowed with oil and other extractive industry-related resources were going to receive the bulk of the royalties for the extraction of those minerals. But they realized that they had created grievances because neighboring departments uh, were not that far from the resource-rich departments were not getting any of those monies. So they changed the system and they decided to centralize some of them but then channel them back to the whole country in a way that it was more consistent with equity considerations that really was focused on ensuring sustainable and balanced development across the country. So they played around the margins with the formulas, with the responsibilities. They also increased the support provided to subnational officials, both at the department and the local level. So all of these tweaks and this iterative process ultimately has positioned Colombia in a much better place. And now that they're facing obviously tremendous challenges with the whole post-conflict agenda and rural development being a key issue that the nation is paying attention to, this reformed decentralization is proven to be a useful tool to deal with issues that obviously transcend redistribution of power across levels of government. Well, let's talk a little bit about rural-urban 
right? We have rapid urbanization occurring in many developing countries uh, across the world. And of course, happening in places in parts of Africa, Asia, Latin America. As you urbanize more, there will be a greater need for people to provide service delivery. There are strong arguments for decentralization as a strong model because you can have a much more efficient service delivery system when you have more representatives who can go further down into the communities and help subdivide them and make sure that people are locally getting what they need rather than some crazy big city manager or someone at the top just making decisions without consultation. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, especially as it relates to urbanization, because the issue of urban policies, the future of cities in, in the world and the role that they're going to play, I mean, you're going to look at places like Lagos and these sort of mega mega cities in the next 10, 20, 30 years that are really going to be not necessarily countries to themselves, but certainly going to have to create and invent new ways of implementing governance. I completely agree. I think that urbanization is one of the biggest challenges that we are all facing in terms of democratic governance all over the world. And specifically, I see it affects decentralization. As you were saying, this mounting pressure for all these megacities to be able to uh, deliver services that are also of adequate quality. But let's be honest, many of these large urban centers are completely overwhelmed because they can't really keep up with the pace of population increases. Decentralization offers a partial solution to this challenge by contributing to anchoring people where they were born by really driving economic activity by virtue of having an administration that implements policies and therefore spends resources and contributes to generate revenue locally and understands better the demands of the people and has an incentive to develop that part of the country because otherwise they get voted out of office. So I think that the urbanization challenge is really a factor that will, in the future, increase the demand for and the intensity of decentralization all over the world. If our listeners were to take away anything from this conversation, what is the one thing they should take away? So I'd say that decentralization is an ongoing process that, if done properly, can really help address some of the biggest challenges that nations face from a democratic governance perspective. It can help improve the delivery of key uh, public services, but also make people feel more represented and be part of an inclusive uh, democratic system. So there you have it, folks. Thank you, Aguiar. We really appreciate the time you took with us today. So that's it, our first podlet. Our next podcast for Global will be coming out on February 1st, and we'll have some great guests lined up. Please make sure to rate us or drop us a line, podcast at iri.org. Tweet at us at iriglobal. This is JTM signing off. Let us know what you're thinking. See you soon.